How's everybody doing okay? Let's try it again. How are you doing? Good. Make me feel alive up here in some way, shape, or form. It's always appreciated. So good to see you. If you are new this morning, welcome to the Mill Church. That includes those of you who may be joining us online for the first time. We're glad you're here. If you would be kind enough to go to the mill.church slash welcome, the mill.church slash welcome on your smartphone at any point during the service and fill out a welcome card. We would be grateful for that. You can do that from your couch. You can do that here in church. And there's also here physically a hard copy of that same welcome card at the back if you're a little more old-fashioned. So uh, thanks again for waking up. Anybody's car not start this morning and need a jump? No? Everybody did okay? Nobody's kids left dumb lights on the back of the minivan this morning? No? All right. Well, good. No, it didn't happen to me either today. Uh, uh, but it's happened many a times. Lights in the minivan. All right. Well, this is the year of 52 stories. And every, every week, really, in 2022, we're having an individual in our church share a story of God's faithfulness. Today's story is going to be uh, brought to you by Pamela O'Neill. Pam, will you join me up here this morning? Give Pam a warm welcome. Will you do that? That's all right. Thanks for sharing, Pam. All right. All right. Good morning, everyone. I'm Pam O'Neill, and this is my story. So I've always sensed or known God in my life. I didn't, I would say, really understand the knowing or what it meant. But as a child, I was consistently in church, mostly delivered by what I term sidewalk parents. I spent much of my young time in church trying to figure out what the pastor was getting all hot and bothered about. He was a bit of a fire and brimstone kind of guy. But I stepped away from church for a little while, probably in my upper teens, no surprise, probably with some of you. And uh, my faith was still growing. I just didn't really know that that was happening. But when my husband and I were young parents, we then made the commitment to attend church as a family. In 1988, at a retreat, I met Jesus in a really big way. He spoke audibly to me, and he opened um, my eyes to the work he was doing in my life. My growth as a Christian then progressed pretty steadily and quickly after that. And I would say I see Jesus as my life preserver. But often he chooses to use others to be a physical preserver for someone in need. And I wanted to share with you about that. This past 13 months for me has been really, really challenging. Um, darn hard. In January of 21, Marty lost his brother to COVID. His brother was a mentor to us 
and it was a great loss. Then in March of 21, we moved up here. We largely lived separately for three months due to a work commitment that Marty had. And so I tried to set up a home and maneuver around, and I didn't know a soul. Then, with my parents in their 90s, we made numerous trips back and forth to central Illinois oh, for months, probably all of last year. Various illnesses, hospital stays, facility moves. In June, I lost my daddy. And six months later, on Christmas Eve, I lost my mom. They'd been married 73 years and just couldn't be kept apart. In the middle of losing my parents, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. All while attempting to set up surgery to get this darn knee done. And the latter here I hope to get taken care of this month. Additionally, I've had friends who have experienced deep grief, unbearable grief this year, and that has consumed me as well. And let me tell you, some of you probably know this, when you carry grief around with you long enough, it's like a really dark, thick blanket, and you can't shake it off. Jesus, however, stepped into the middle of all this chaos, my grief, my despair, and he utilized people from this church since the moment that Marty and I entered its doors on Easter. And if you'll remember, that's the first day this building opened up. People I, I just barely knew, they barely knew me. People that Jesus called on to be the life preserver for me, and they said yes. So I could leave and attend to family business. They watered my plants. They attended my yard. They looked after my home. They brought me food. They prayed. They've encouraged me. And they've now become dear friends. They were and continue to be the feet and hands of Jesus. This is what this congregation holds. People who want to serve. God does not call up, call us up in a convenient time to serve. Open hearts take the call whenever it comes and they don't question it. And I want to repeat that. God does not set up convenient times to serve. Those who listen, are ready and willing, take the call when it comes and they don't question it. Even in the middle of my cancer treatment, not feeling well, God presented me with some people who were in crisis, and I was able to serve them. I was thrilled to do it for them. So will life continue to bring grief, chaos, uncertainty, and remorse? Absolutely. But with that comes hope and great joy, joy of knowing and experiencing Jesus Christ firsthand through the willing hands of others, and hope in the promise that God has given all of us that all things are possible for those who believe. Well, this is the year of 52 stories, and Jesus is my hero. Thank you, Pam. Can I pray for you? Would that be all right?
I'm going to pray for Pam this morning. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for Pam and Marty. Lord, we're so grateful that they've taught us a lesson this morning on what it means to grieve and to allow our grief to press us closer to you and not farther away. And I just pray, Lord, that we would take note. Lord, all of us inevitably are going to have a tough year or years in this life on earth, and we just want to be found faithful in the middle of trial and circumstance. And so I thank you that Pam has been a great example for us. I thank you, Lord, that you're continuing to heal her body. We pray that the cancer would retreat in the name of Jesus. We pray for a successful knee surgery in Jesus' name. Lord, that you would be her healer that you would take away every bit of anxiety, any concern, any worry, give her joy and peace. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. 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 Awesome. Thank you, Pam. Give Pam another round of applause for her courage in sharing with us this morning. We are, uh, as I said, glad that you are here today. We're in a sermon series in Paul's letter to the Colossians. I'm going to jump right in this morning. We're walking through the book in a verse-by-verse format. So if you're new, uh, you may feel like you're a bit behind, but I'll tell you that each Sunday contains pretty... uh, you know, one-off lessons that it doesn't really matter when you come. The Bible is appealing and valuable uh, for us all. There's always a gem or two to mine when you open the scriptures. Uh, So last week we read chapter 1, verses 15 through 23 aloud. And I'm just going to read these verses again to give us a little context, and then we'll draw some additional conclusions. Verse 15, he, he is Jesus, the Apostle Paul, is writing, he is the image of the invisible God. We talked about that last Sunday. The firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of of the body, the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He's now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Last week we talked about the image of God and why that is significant. We talked about Jesus being the firstborn of all creation, not first in birth order, 
but first in terms of importance. And we talked about Jesus being the creator of all, for by him all things were created. Our next takeaway is simply this. Jesus is eternal. Would you say that with me? Jesus is eternal. Verse 17. And he is before all things. I'll read that again. And he is before all things. Jesus is eternal. How many of you would agree that eternal is a high number of candles on one's birthday cake? The number eternal. That's a lot of candles. Okay? Jesus is eternal. The Bible describes Jesus in Revelation 21 as the Alpha and the Omega. That's the first and the last letters in, in the Greek alphabet. That means Jesus is the beginning and the end, or maybe it'd be more correct to say that Jesus is without beginning and without ending. Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, they do not have a high view of Jesus as do Christians, as does the Bible. The Bible describes Jesus as being an eternal God, meaning he wasn't just flesh and bones. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. That wasn't the beginning of Jesus' life. Far from it. Uh, Colossians 1.17 just echoed this. He is before all things. That means that whatever exists, Jesus was before the whatever. Okay? So, uh, he is before all things. I think that's a fairly clear statement. You and I have a beginning, do we not? Mine was 1981. When was yours? Don't answer that. Um, we have a beginning and an end. Jesus doesn't. Um, and the great news for us is that Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us in heaven, an eternal place. That means that Jesus, our Lord and King, he knows what lies on the other side of the grave. For those of you who fear death, I hope that's not you uh, this morning. You need to know that we can absolutely trust Jesus and that he's preparing a place for us and a life in which to enter next. He's eternal. He'll be waiting there. Next point, Jesus is the sustainer. Jesus is the sustainer. So not only did Jesus create the world that exists, we talked about that last week, he also is the one who sustains the world that exists. The doctrine is in stark contrast to this philosophical idea that I studied in college, in Bible college, called deism. Deists believe that God made the known world and then he kind of just checked out and became like an absentee dad or like an absentee landlord, that he set these rules in nature for it to govern itself like gravity. Um, and then he just kind of pieced out and, and the scriptures are very clear that that's far from the truth. God is not like a dad who walks out. God has not left you. God has not abandoned you. God is very much involved with his creation. He participates in it. He did so by sending Jesus. He doesn't just make it all. He sustains it all. So Jesus sustains or holds up everything that he creates. And here's how Paul says it. Verse 17, and in him all things hold 
together. Have you ever wondered to yourself, how is it that the world just keeps on spinning? How is it that we are, you know, a few miles from all freezing to death, where we farther away from the sun, and a few miles from all being incinerated from the sun in the other direction? How could it be? Well, the answer is by Jesus. That's how it is. Jesus sustains the world that Jesus created. He is intentional. He is powerful. He is active. How many of you, when you were a kid, you sang this song uh, in church? You may remember, he's got the whole what? Oh, you just sang a little bit of it. That was cute. Let's try it together. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole wide world in his hands. He's got the whole wide world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. Little bitty babies. He's got, no, I'm just kidding. We'll stop there. Okay. He's got the whole world in his hands. Not only did Jesus create, he also sustained. That song is simple, but it's actually good theology. Because Jesus does have the whole world in his figurative hands. Meaning he is loving his creation. He's ruling over his creation. He's saving his creation. And here's our gut level human response to this truth. We think to ourselves, Pastor, have you seen the news? Have you seen what's going on? Like this is in stark contrast to what I've been... Are you aware how volatile the market is? Do you know that Putin's knocking on Ukraine's doorstep? Like, are you living in some kind of, some kind of spiritual bubble? Things are exploding. Things are falling apart. And everybody wants to freak out. And you know what? Just because something is out of our hands does not mean that it is out of God's hands. It doesn't mean that it's out of God's hands. God's in control. He's sovereign. He sustains the world that he created. God's hands can hold together what our hands cannot. Just ask Pam. She'll tell you. God will sustain us. If your life is falling apart, give it to Jesus. If your marriage is falling apart, give it to Jesus. If your family is falling apart, give it to Jesus. Jesus has and is sustaining Pam and Marty, and he will sustain you in your circumstance, in your trial, in your suffering. He'll hold you up in the palm of his hand. How many of you have experienced personally, like Pam, Jesus the sustainer, the one who sustains? See, a number of you. He takes care of us. How how many of you have heard of, in the Old Testament, they set up these things called Ebenezer stones. They would stack stones up when God had brought them through something significant so that when the next generation, their kids wandered by that spot, they would say, I remember that day when, when my parents erected this set, this stack of stones to remember what God has brought us through. So what are you trusting God with this morning? What do you need him to sustain for you? 
He will hold you together. Next point, Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. I don't know if you've seen much of this, but for the past 20 years or so, I would say, uh, maybe a little longer, it's been kind of fashionable to be critical of the church. It's just kind of been a popular thing to do, to point out every flaw the church has, to declare that the church is weak, to say there was a moral failure there, or there was an unfulfilled prophecy there, or there was uh, this there and that there. And, and at the Mill Church, I will tell you that we are not like that. We believe the church, which is called the bride of Christ in the Bible, is the world's hope. It is why we plant churches. If we believed that the church was a poison or problematic, we wouldn't start new ones. We believe the church is, is the answer. It doesn't matter if they're house churches, large launch churches, micro churches. The expression of the gospel corporately in a community of people with like-minded faith is the answer to the brokenness in our world. So the church is important. We believe in churches. Do churches need accountability? Absolutely. Do churches need good bylaws? Absolutely. Do pastors need to be pastored? Yes, they do. But it does not mean that the church ought to be perfect and that anything short of perfect ought to be criticized. The church is full of people. People are not perfect. People make mistakes. The church will have flaws. And yet Jesus still died for her. And Jesus will one day perfect her when he calls her up to glory to be with himself. Jesus loved the church. Jesus gave his life for the church. Jesus is devoted to the church. So when we speak of the church in malicious ways, we offend the bridegroom. How many of you guys would say, you know what? It offends me. It makes me angry when someone says something about my bride. This is the way Jesus feels about his church. So we must be careful. And he is the head of the church. That's what Paul says in verse 18. As he is the head of the body, the church. One of Paul's most popular metaphors in the New Testament for the church is that we're like a body, like a human body. And there are so many different parts to a human body. Not everybody is a pair of eyes. Not everybody is a, is a hand. Not everybody is a leg. We're all different. We're all complementary, but we fit together in this body. We work together to love others on behalf of Jesus, but the way it works in my body is that direction is given from my head. Is that true of your body? Your head leads you your thoughts, your actions, your behaviors. And so the head of the church is Jesus Christ. The church is to love together and work together and serve together. But who ultimately is leading the church? Well, it ought to be Jesus. Really big problems surface 
when Jesus is not the head of the church. Really big problems. When the pastor thinks he's the head of the church, chaos ensues. When the staff thinks that they are the head, you start to have a culture in which the staff is here to be served and not to serve the people. Some churches have at their head a board of some sort. Some board, some committee is the head of the church. Only Jesus is the head of his church. Jesus is in charge. So our goal isn't to argue and fight over what we want, but to pray and seek what Jesus wants. Because he's the head. Lord, give us your wisdom. Lord, what do you want for your church? Lord, help us figure this season out. Lord, give us direct. In other words, it's, it's not ruled. We don't have pews in here, but, but churches ought not to be ruled from the pew up. They ought to be ruled from the throne down. That Jesus is in charge. And here's why this is so important. And I do hope this is a point of correction and not criticism. But if we're not very careful, we will let consumerism and we will let customer satisfaction be the head of the church. Just like any other business. Let me explain what I mean. Isn't that after all the way business works? I was waiting tables in grad school. I waited tables for years. In college, I was at Cracker Barrel. But in grad school, I was at a, a restaurant called Green Hills Grill in Green Hills, Tennessee, right outside of Nashville. And I waited tables, and this lady came in, and we got into an argument, I'm ashamed to admit, over what was included in a particular dish. And I knew that she was wrong. I knew that the dish did not have chickpeas. Okay? And she insisted that every time she ordered the dish in the past that it had chickpeas in it. And I said, ma'am, this dish does not have chickpeas. And I continued to insist that the dish did not have chickpeas. And I would later... <laughs> she would later speak to my manager because she asked to speak to my manager... And he would verify that the dish does not have chickpeas. But do you know what he said to me back in the office? What, what many of you have heard from your employers. The customer is always what? Right. The customer is always right. Zach, never make that mistake again. Somebody wants chickpeas, you bring them chickpeas. The customer is always right. So what does it look like in a church when the customer is always right? What does it look like when the church sees itself as a business and puts people at the head, sees all of you as customers? Well, the church will make every decision based on how to least offend you. The church will make every decision on how to appease as many of you as possible. Oh, you don't want us to mention hell? Okay, we won't mention that. We understand that's offensive. Oh, you don't want us to talk about repentance? We will not mention repentance. 
as something that Christians ought to be doing on a regular basis. Oh, you don't want to talk about humility? Oh, you don't want to talk about generosity? You don't want to call, you don't want us to call what the Bible calls sin? We won't, you don't want solid Bible teaching? Okay, we'll change the menu to feed the customers what they want. Church family, it's important to remember that you and I are not the customers in the church. Do you know who the customer is? The customer is the Lord. The customer is Jesus. He's the one who's always right. He's the one we appease. He's the one we glorify. He's the one we want delighted. He's the one, the only one, whose comment card really matters. Well done, good and faithful servant. How many of you would love to get to heaven and find out that the comment card that Jesus filled out at your church said, well done, good and faithful servant? Man, how awesome would that be? See, kids... Kids know what they think they need. Have any of you made that observation as a parent? It's like it's at 2 a.m. Daddy, can I have some Mountain Dew? It's like, no, it's 2 a.m. We don't give you Mountain Dew at 2 a.m., right? Daddy, can we, can, you know, lighter in one hand and, and uh, bottle rocket in the other? You know, can, can I light that? It's like, no, you're inside the house. Are you out of your mind? Like, no, you cannot do that. But I thought you loved me, Daddy. I thought you, I do, and I don't want you to kill yourself. And therefore, the answer is no. I want to keep you alive. See, sometimes we forget that we're the children of God. We think we know what's best for us. How many of you would say, spiritually speaking, I've drank a lot of Mountain Dew at 2 a.m. as a child of the King. We've made mistakes, right? And our Father's in heaven saying, I know what's best for you. Listen to me. Be obedient to me. I have your well-being, your best interest at heart. Jesus is the head of his church. Last takeaway this morning. Jesus is alive. Now this is where I'm going to preach a little fire and brimstone. Just like your preacher growing up. Jesus is alive. You know what should be on every news station that you watch morning and evening? Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. He's alive. He 
he's not dead. He's still alive. He died, but then he rose again. 2,000 years ago, he's still alive. CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, Reuters. He's alive today. This is unbelievable. See, we get so caught up in the now that we miss the later. We, we, we think in terms of earthly things and not heavenly things. Some of you are thinking, I've heard this before, Pastor. Tell me something new. And it's like, no, it's the same darn awesome news all the time. It doesn't change. We don't need any new news. And pity you. Pity you if you're bored with it. Jesus is alive. Verse 18. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead. See, Jesus isn't dead. Have I told you Jesus isn't dead this morning yet? He's alive. See, one of my all-time favorite albums, I wore this thing out in a CD Walkman. Does anybody remember the Walkman? Mowing the yard. Darn CD trying to spin sideways on your hip. Good. George Strait's. Greatest Hits album called, for the last time, Live from the Astrodome. One of the best albums ever. Boy, did I abuse that thing. Greatest Hits are the best. How many of you like Greatest Hits? You know the story of Jesus is like a Greatest Hits album? It's just always good music. It's just always sweet sounding. You don't have to skip over the songs you don't like because they're all good. The tune just doesn't get old. He's the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. What's it talking about that Jesus died and now Jesus is alive? Just so you know, nobody else has ever done this. Ever. Some people rose from death or came back from death after being shocked or something. But guess what? They died again. They still experienced an earthly death. Jesus did not. He rose from death and went straight up to the right hand of his father and sat on a throne where he still sits today, governing Ruling, reigning. It's a miracle. It's it's unique. It's unusual that Jesus was dead and now he's alive. Have I told you this morning that Jesus was dead and now Jesus is alive? There's a historian named Edwin, I wish I could pronounce his last name. He's done research on this. He says, in the region where Jesus lived, died, and rose in his day, there were more than 
50 holy people who died and their tombs were memorialized. And people would travel to commemorate them. What does that mean? People would travel, faithful Jews would travel to the tombs of the likes of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and they would memorialize them. What does that mean? It means they'd go and cry. They would light candles. They would play the guitar. They would leave pictures. They would arrange flowers. And unlike these tombs, unlike these tombs, they've never really been sure where Jesus Christ is to be memorialized because they have not produced a body. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? That tourist companies argue, one says Jesus is buried here, and another says Jesus is buried here, and buses full of people cross each other, go into the tombs of Jesus. Nobody knows where the real thing is. They will be honest, they will tell you that. He's the firstborn of the dead. That in everything, he might be preeminent. Why is it that we lost track of Jesus' tomb when he was more famous than all 50 of the others? Why? I'll tell you why. Because over generations, people stopped going to it. Why did people stop going to it? Because it was empty. They didn't go there to write poems. They didn't go there to sing songs. They didn't go there because Jesus was not there. They didn't go there to have vigils at night because he was in town for 40 days having breakfast. If they wanted to see Jesus, they went to where he was and ate broiled fish with him. He's hugging people and praying with people. So if you go to Israel today, and that's on my bucket list, and I'll probably visit every one of the darn places where they think Jesus may have been laid to rest, just because I think it's super cool. I'm even told they're forthcoming. They'll tell you, you know, we don't know. We don't know. They'd be honest. But why is that again? Because people didn't care to go back there. Because for 40 days before his ascension, Jesus was hanging out with them, laughing with them, singing with them. Paul says he's the firstborn of the dead. That means he's the very first guy to beat death. The first one to beat it. And we all try to to beat death, do we not? We all try. We have seatbelts. We have vitamins. We have sunscreen. I have a new CPAP machine. All of us try to beat death. We try to be healthy. We try to stay around as long as possible. You can say, I don't want to die. All you want. What's the reality? You're going to die. You will. If Jesus tarries, if he doesn't come back, you will die. And do you know how you're going to die? You're going to die full of water and full of vitamins 
and full of sunscreen all over your body, you will die. But Jesus is the one who's conquered death. And he came back for 40 days proving that he was alive and he's still alive. And this is what makes Christianity better than all of the other religions. This is the difference. Because all the other religions, you have a weird guy who died. And that's all you have. That's it. You have a weird guy who died. And they miss him. And it's like, is that all you've got? A weird guy who died? That guy's no help to you anymore. Why? Because he's dead. He's dead. You know what dead people do? Very little. Okay? It's like a four-legged dog. It's one of my grandpa's favorite jokes. Do you know where you find a four, or excuse me, a no-legged dog? It's like the clownfish in Finding Nemo. Can't tell a joke to save my life. You know where you find a no-legged dog? The same place you left it. That's where you find a no-legged dog. Do you know where you find Buddha? The same place you left him. You know where you find Muhammad? The same place you left him. You know where you find Abraham? The same place you left him. Do you know where to find Jesus? You can't. You can't because he's alive today and he's preparing a home in heaven for those who believe. He resurrected from death. He will resurrect you from death. Some of you lost pregnancies. Shan and I lost our first pregnancy. We had a miscarriage. Those are painful experiences. But you know what's going to happen to all of our little lost babies? They're going to be skipping rope together on the streets of glory in heaven. Glory to God. And you know what's going to happen to everybody who's died of breast cancer that loves Jesus or from COVID who loves Jesus? Tough, no doubt, on this side of heaven to walk through those things. But if they know Jesus, they'll be resurrected like Jesus. They'll be rocking on porches and playing pickleball and singing their favorite hymns with the angels around the throne. There will be no sickness, no pain, no tears, no anxiety, no poverty, no injustice. We will rise from our graves should Jesus tarry and meet him in the air. Lord, we love you. Lord, why would nobody, why would anybody not say yes to you? What is the alternative to the only guy who's ever beat death? Lord, we just submit ourselves to you. You're the boss. We're not. We're the children. You're the father. Lord, speak to us. Change us. Help us to obey you, Lord. Honor you, Lord. 
Is there anybody here this morning with head bowed that would say, I want to trust in Jesus for salvation. I want to become a Christian today. I want to go to heaven to be with the Lord. Would you just look up and lock eyes with me? I'm a normal guy. I'm not going to do anything weird. Awesome. Anybody else here today want to become a Christian? Praise the Lord. Just look up and lock eyes with me so I know it's you. That's your heart. Jesus knows your heart. Beautiful. Praise the Lord. Would everybody pray after me, those of you who love the Lord and those who looked up and, and locked eyes with me? Heavenly Father, I need you. I am a child. You're my Father. Forgive me of my sins. Just as Jesus was resurrected, resurrect me to new life. Give me a new start. Create a new person inside of me. Make me to be born again. Deliver me from my struggles. Deliver me from evil. Set me apart to do your work, to love you, to love others, to serve you, to serve others. In Jesus' name, amen.